Thank you, Elspeth. It's been really good to sort of think through this, you know, in relation to this group and this setting. Um, all right, so I will come back to that image. Um, so I begin with, uh, you know, sort of um, common understandings of, of, of secrecy, um, especially um, in uh, sort of applied politics and in uh, sort of the mainstream uh, work in, in political science and political theory. Um, and I start with the, the idea that the fact, right, sort of that states will keep secrets, particularly when security is at stake, is practically a given in the study of international politics. Um, and given that framework, um, empirical research on secrecy and transparency tends to focus on a handful of questions, right? It often will focus on why states do or do not engage in secrecy, what questions enable secrecy to be maintained, what conditions enable secrecy to be maintained, um, normative work tends to focus on the question of under what circumstances secrecy might be permissible, um, right? And off, most often these are areas related to security and intelligence. Um, and this begins with the assumption that secrecy and accountability are in tension. Um, and by beginning with that assumption, normative work thus prefigures the key dilemma as being how do we balance this against one, each other? Furthermore, this valorization of transparency and the suspicion of secrecy is embedded not just in political theory, but also in political practice. Um, it underlies advocacy for practices such as body cameras for police and support for whistleblowers such as Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning and for projects such as WikiLeaks, uh, whose enactors conceptualized their potential impact based upon a belief that First, one could reach transparency, and second, that transparency by the mere fact of existing will be the best guarantee for democratic power and free society. So I'm sort of beginning with these common understandings of transparency and, account and, and exposure as um, you know, in opposition to secrecy and as something that will uh, you know, possibly challenge secrecy. Security is the, both the arena where the need for state secrecy is most often justified and also that in which the use of secrecy is most often feared to lead to overreach. Um, in a framework where secrecy is framed as a threat to not just democracy and accountability, but also basic norms and decency, openness or exposure is often held up as the solution, with exposure framed as the heroic, disruptive force through which excesses of state secrecy can be countered. My argument in this paper however, is that this solution rests upon an implicit and flawed understanding of how secrecy, exposure, and accountability relate. And I call this the secrecy, exposure, accountability narrative. Um, right? and basically, this is uh, an understanding in which it's assumed that secrecy can be disrupted by exposure, by public truth-telling, which will then lead to accountability. In practice, however, exposure does not necessarily lead to accountability. Um, right, this is probably not new to those of you in this room, um, but I, I, you know, sort of, I think it's, it's, it's something that is uh, still counter to common understandings of how secrecy works. Secrecy exposure can lead to complacency. It can even lead to reinforced support for that which has been exposed. And so I'm therefore are going to argue that we need to rethink how we theorize not just secrecy, but also its relationship to truth-telling, to exposure, and to political action. And I'm going to illustrate this through a case study of exposure of the use of torture by the US in the war on terror. So 
This is then situated within the politics of human rights and violations of human rights. Right? And in discussions of the politics of human rights, um, it's generally assumed that states that engage in atrocities will aim to keep that a secret. That's sort of the baseline assumption in most of the work. Um, furthermore, it's generally assumed that if states are exposed in enacting human rights violations, that they will then take appropriate actions in response, right? And so what's deemed to be the appropriate action? Um, that they will, first of all, disavow the violations, right? We didn't know this was happening. Um, this was wrong. We're going to, you know, sort of take changes. We're going to punish those responsible. Um, and you can see times, right, sort of where this sort of expected sequence of events does play out. So for example, um, I would point to the recent exposures of British complicity in rendition and torture in the war on terror as something where, right, sort of the system worked. Now we can talk about what it means to work, right, because there's, uh, you know, definitely recent work on scandal, right, so I was, um, you know, talking about Jamie Johnson's recent work on scandal, which argues that scandals, right, sort of even when they work, end up reinforcing, uh, right, sort of the use of violence. But that's right. But that still presumes that there's sort of a way that scandal exposure is supposed to work, right? Which means that scandals and exposure lead to an expected pattern of investigations, recriminations, apologies, um, right? And and that they they lead to the state, uh, you know, at least rhetorically making amends for what it has done. Right, but what if, what if that doesn't happen? What if things don't play out as planned? Um, right, and I argue that the exposure of the use of torture, right, or as the Bush administration wanted like, to call it, enhanced interrogation, didn't lead to accountability, but it also didn't lead to recrimination. Right? It, didn't, it, it led instead to acknowledgement and open justification of, of the practices. Right. Not only was there no prosecution um, or individual accountability of those of those responsible, with the exception of a few very low-level individuals, um, what we witness in the U.S. response to the exposures, right, is not just lack of accountability, not just um, complacency or or ignoring it, but actual ownership, right? Sort of the response where the state steps up and says, "Yes, we did these things, and it was justified." Right. And so that's why I have. Uh, Dick Cheney there. Um, so even as more and more evidence came to light exposing the use of torture in the war on terror, and this is one of the things that's interesting to me, is that there was this sort of um, repeated exposures over time, right? Sort of one thing is exposed, then another piece of evidence is exposed, and, but yet, and it seems to pile up, but none of it has the intended effect. State officials, however, repeatedly stepped up not to condemn, but to justify the practices. Furthermore, as the exposures went on, among the general public, support for the use of torture actually increased. Even in the case of the scandal following the release of the photos from Abu Ghraib, and these were um, aired on, on the television program 60 Minutes in April 2004, these did lead to initial an initial scandal, right? So if you wanted to point to some part of the um, sort of exposures of torture by the U.S., right, sort of the Abu Ghraib scandal is sort of the one piece that maybe fits that pattern a little bit, right? It was a scandal, there were investigations, and there was accountability for these low-level individuals. But, right, sort of even there, this was followed by official retrenchment and supportive techniques like waterboarding, which was differentiated from the abuses dominating, which were documented in Abu Ghraib, right? So the effect of Abu Ghraib was to say, yes, right, sort of what happened there was not acceptable, but our use of waterboarding, right, 
that is fine and it works and it's necessary. Um, right? And so the takeaway, at least from the, the perspective of the official statesman, was that torture is acceptable as long as it's performed in a professional manner. Furthermore, following the Abu Ghraib scandal, what you see from the, the Bush administration is they begin to take on a new strategy of not only defending the use of torture, but actively releasing information about the program, right? Whereas up until that point, there had been, I mean, an interesting thing, right? Sort of something I'm focusing on in the book, not in this paper, is that there, the public debate on the permissibility of torture preceded these revelations. There was a hypothetical debate from late 2001 on should we torture, and this um, parallel at, at the parallel time there were these hints, right? Sort of, it's, you know, somebody mentioned earlier um, taking the gloves off, right, and that we're going to fight dirty. Those sorts of hints were happening earlier, but not explicit acknowledgement um, of what was happening. After after Abu Ghraib, though, you start to see more and more explicit acknowledgement. In June 2004, right, sort of, which is uh, two months after the airing of the photos, Bush administration declassified the first set of the torture memos, which were these legal memos written by the White House legal advisors, right, sort of on whether various practices are going to be legally permissible. Um, in September 2006, President Bush acknowledged the existence of CIA black sites where prisoners were secretly held and his authorization of waterboarding and other so-called alternative interrogation tactics, which he characterized as tough, safe, lawful, and necessary on national television. The following month, Congress passed the Military Commissions Act, um, and among other things, this permitted the use of evidence and confessions extracted through coercive interrogation. Right, so again, you have the legitimation of the practices. Once the Bush administration was out of office, you saw, began to see even more explicit justifications. Um, former Vice President Dick Cheney, in particular, uh, would become extremely publicly vocal in support of indefinite detention and what he would call intarch interrogation. Um, and you know, sort of with, with the election of Donald Trump, the US now has a president who has come out and endorsed torture without the verbal qualifications of his predecessors, right? who would not use the word, who would say it's enhanced interrogation. So not only did state officials reject, not reject the use of torture once it was exposed, right, which again is, is sort of the expectation, um, right, sort of both in terms of people who think about secrecy and exposure as political advocates and also in most of the normative, normative political science literature, right, not only did they, did they not reject the use of torture, they also appeared to face little public sanction for doing so. Contrary to expectations, exposing the use of torture to the public did not lead to a backlash, necessitating apologies or accountability. On the contrary, large segments of the American public expressed their support. Levels of support furthermore actually increased as more information about the public became, the program became public. Opinion surveys have suggested there was increasing support among Americans for the use of torture in the war on terror, even as the revelations became more explicit. Um, when President Obama came into office, so he was inaugurated in January 2009, um, right, he uh, made a policy change, right? Sort of he banned the use of torture, and he also declassified much of the remaining do documentation on um, relating to his justification, right? So many of the additional legal memos and so forth. Um, but again, right, sort of this wasn't followed by calls for accountability. Um, what happened was the opposite. Approval for torture actually increased. 
Between February and April 2009, the percentage of Americans expressing support for torture rose by five full points, with those saying that torture was sometimes or often justified now rising above 50%. So what happened here? Right? Clearly, right, sort of this is not a case where exposure led directly to accountability. Right? I mean, it also, of course, it also doesn't make sense to say that exposure led directly to increased support. Right? That's not what I'm positing. Um, the error here, I want to suggest, is that there's a failure to account for the fact that information always needs to be interpreted, and information, interpretation is always political. Um, right? So what happens is exposure opens up a field for contestation, right? sort of for domination of interpretation, both of the facts of what happened, right? sort of what actually occurred, and for the normative evaluation. What is this something that was, uh, you know, should be approved of or not? Um, and to go back to right, sort of the, the secrecy exposure accountability model, which I argue underlies a lot of the thinking about secrecy and exposure, right, it implies, um, it relies upon an implicit stability of both facts and values, right? That information, once it's released, is A, it's transparent in its meaning, and also that norms are stable, right? That, um, you know, that's in this case, right, there's a norm that human rights are good, that torture is bad, and that this is self-evidently true, um, you know, and that neither facts nor values are going to be subject to contestation as a result of exposures. Um, and obviously, however, this isn't what happened. After President Obama released further the documentation, um, this opened up a full-fledged battle for interpretation. Right? So, for example, um, David Luban writes, former Bush administration figures like Dick Cheney, John Yoo, and Mark Thiessen began a full-throttle public relations campaign on behalf of torture, hammering home the twin themes that torture works and torture saved American lives, along with their third theme, it isn't really torture. Um, so where do we go from here, right? So I'm arguing that I've, uh, in a sort of outlined one case study where, right, secrecy followed by exposure, right, doesn't lead to accountability. So what? Um, so I've suggested that it's, uh, right, sort of predominant in both academic and practical um, understandings of state secrecy that these rely upon this secrecy exposure accountability model, right? The idea that there's a causal pathway that sort of will generally happen. That exposures of wrongdoing will straightforwardly lead to accountability. Um, now, I've outlined one case, right? It's not difficult to find other examples of exposure not working as expected. Um, but I would suggest that these are often treated either anecdotally, um, right, sort of, or as failures. Um, you know, sort of, there, there's, there's some sort of technical failure, right, sort of in the pathway from exposure to accountability, rather than a need to re-theorize that, that process as a whole. Um, and I would say instead, right, sort of, I, you know, sort of rather than saying that these failures are simply technical failures and that if implemented correctly, transparency will work, um, instead I want to suggest, right, sort of that failures indicate a failure in the very way that we tend to conceptualize secrecy and exposure and accountability and the connections between them. Um, and so, 
drawing here, right, sort of on a lot of the work that's happened, right, sort of, um, you know, sort of that people in this room have been developing, um, you know, in terms of interdisciplinary thinking about secrecy that moves beyond thinking about secrecy as simply, right, like closing or hiding of information and exposure as simply opening up. Um, so, uh, yeah, so right, I'm saying it's not a technical failure. Do we need to reconceptualize? So this is this is you know sort of my um, image of you know sort of one one view of that popular understanding, right? That you've got you know obviously a little cartoon Donald Trump there who's being faced by chased after by little monsters who are called facts and critical thinking, and he is running scared, um, right? And if the world works that way, that would be really nice. Oh, sorry, I can't take off my sweater because I'm messing up the um, microphone. All right, sorry. Um, so instead, I want to suggest, right, sort of that this secrecy exposure accountability narrative incorporates flawed assumptions into our thinking about how secrecy and exposure work, right? And these include, um, first, you know, sort of a way of thinking about secrecy that um, thinks about it as a matter of hiding or enclosing a discrete body of information, right? Which, you know, as the people here are generally aware, is something that a lot of the more interesting interdisciplinary work on secrecy has been critiquing. Um, this is paired with, right, it's then an understanding of exposure, which says that, well, if secrecy is enclosing information, exposure can disrupt that, and that we can disrupt the whole process of secrecy simply by sharing information. And that furthermore, exposure to information will lead straightforwardly to an awaiting public, which will then directly make use of these new truths to demand accountability for those in power. Right? That's sort of the ideal model. Exposure and transparency are seen as enabling effective action, thus also presuming a certain set of characteristics in the audience, um, right? sort of that the public is enlightened, that they're capable of taking action, and that they right, sort of have a set of values right, sort of that are sort of liberal enlightenment values and and if you hear about atrocities, they will, of course, object to these. Um, and then we'll be able to take action to cause states to be held accountable for their actions. And if, we need to, if we want to understand why this model doesn't work as promised, um, then I suggest we need to re-theorize exposure, right? As not simply a removal of a veil or a screen, therefore allowing information to freely circulate, but a complex process that involves power relations and interpretive processes, and furthermore, one that can play out differently in different times and locations. Um, right, and I would suggest we can draw on the critiques of information presented by scholars of secrecy, right, sort of people like Dean and Roberts and Birchall and Fenster, who have pointed out that information doesn't exist apart from political interpretation, and that neither withholding or the release of information leads to effects on its own. Um, so... Oh, so, all right, sorry, that goes with that slide. So I want to conclude by noting that the case of the exposure of torture, um, you know, I, I don't want to argue that this is exceptional, right, sort of that this is a lone exception or aberration to a general rule that exposure works. Um, because I would suggest that we can easily point to a number of other recent cases in which exposure and transparency have not only failed to lead to accountability, but have even uh, seemed to result in the opposite, uh, strident justification of the norms, um, of, of the, the violations that were exposed. 
Um, and so I would suggest, right, sort of that these would include the repeated exposure of police brutality against African Americans in the U.S., the persistent lying, right, sort of, or use of quote unquote alternative facts by Donald Trump, and the continued embrace of U.S. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh by Republicans, even following repeated revelations that he had uh, committed sexual assault. Right, and so that's the context in which this cartoon came out. Which it says it's not that we don't believe your story; it's that we don't care. Um, this was published during the Kavanaugh hearings, right? When um, and and you know, sort of the idea that all of these um, you know, sort of conservative male senators were hearing these these stories, and there was a sense that. You know, the contestation wasn't going on so much over the facts of the case, but whether it even mattered, right? That, you know, that you, there were these, these um, statements coming out that suggested that generally, right, sort of, there were, there were sort of a subset of, of individuals among the Republicans who didn't care if the allegations were true because it, they didn't see this as disqualifying. Like many secrets that become exposed, um, the phenomenon of U U.S. police brutality was something I would say, right, sort of that counts that can be considered an open secret. That all of these, in fact, can be considered open secrets, right? There are things that were always known by some, um, but not necessarily widely publicized or acknowledged by the majority population. Um, as in the case of torture, exposure of police brutality did not occur in one spectacular incident, but comprises an ongoing phenomenon. Right? There's a pattern of repeated exposures, repeated incidents, and repeated exposures, um, and it's right, sort of it's as if the same incident is 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 exposed over and over again, yet leading to no resolution. And but again, I want to say it sort of goes beyond this. Right? It's not just we don't care, um, right? That implies that, uh, you know, sort of the reaction is we're just, uh, you know, this doesn't matter, we're gonna ignore it. It's not just that we don't care. There's a reaction in each of these in, um, cases, I would suggest, of reassertion that the thing exposed is acceptable, right? So in the case of um, exposures of police brutality, there we've seen in the US the rise of a so-called Blue Lives Matter movement, um, right, in defense of, of police, no matter what they do, and proposed legislation in several states States, um, which would criminalize any kind of acts against the police as hate crimes, right? That would that would define police as a protected category, um, and and so I, you know I argue this is this is not just um, ignoring right sort of, but it's a, it's a reassertion of the thing that's been exposed of of the power of the police. Um, following the exposure in the case of uh, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, right, following the exposure of multiple allegations of sexual assault, um, I would suggest similarly, right, sort of the most shocking response is not, has been not that members of the Republican Party questioned the truth of the allegations, but that there were testimonies of widespread support for the nominee, even if the allegations were found to be true. Um, so one, one journalist wrote, it is a remarkable fact of American life that hordes of men are now defending sexual assault. Another piece that came out during the hearings was headlined, Republicans offer a shocking defense, sexual assault isn't a big deal. So again, I would suggest, right, sort of, it's not just that there's contestation over the facts, he said, she said. There's a contestation over whether or not, um, you know, even if these allegations are true, is that a problem? And so again, I would argue that, um, you know, that these 
phenomena can be understood on the one hand as the failure of exposure of one's hidden truths. On the other hand, they can also be seen as right, sort of exposure of something that was an open secret. Right? It's, it's, it's known widely right, sort of that men in positions of power engage in sexual assault, right? even if you know, sort of the specific allegations were not something that, that was sort of known previously. It's widely known that Donald Trump lies, but yet, right, sort of the exposure of, you know, it seems like every week, um, you know, sort of the Washington Post, the New York Times will come up with a new article saying Donald Trump has now made, you know, 6,942 misleading allegations. Um, you know, but it doesn't seem to matter. Nothing sticks. Um, and so I'd argue that each of these phenomena can be understood um, as the failure of exposure. Um, you know, an exposure of something that was in some sense known, right? An exposure, it, therefore, is not necessarily about revealing hidden information so much as about sharing evidence in public, right? So in the case of, right, to return to the case of torture, right? There, you know, it's, it, it's, it's hard to say that there wasn't some sense in which it was already, wasn't already known that the U.S. is engaging in torture. What happens with the exposures is that specific pieces of evidence are brought forward, and it's assumed that this will then put this on the table and lead to some sort of official acknowledgement and accountability. Um, but instead, right, sort of this exposure, um, this truth-telling, right, sort of which is meant to force a reckoning, it seems to produce perhaps the opposite. It produces a reaction um, of, of open, uh, open defense. And so, to conclude, I would suggest that we perhaps need to, in thinking about at least these sets of cases, shift from a theory of secrecy to a theory of truth-telling and what kinds of political effects will truth-telling have. Um, and again, right, sort of, I would, I would uh, you know, situate this by saying that Right, the, the fact that information and truth are political, both in their production and in their effects, is something that is well known, right? Sort of in science and technology studies and in the emerging interdisciplinary literature on secrecy. Um, but I would also suggest that these findings have really barely begun to penetrate into debates on secrecy and accountability within the mainstream of political science, um, right, which tends to still sort of um, produce work that relies upon this implicit understanding of secrecy, exposure, accountability. Um, and furthermore, that this, this um, secrecy, exposure, accountability narrative underlines a lot of um, popular understanding of the politics of secrecy and popular political mobilization right, sort of in favor of exposure and transparency. And if there is this recurrent failure, right, of exposure to lead to the accountability that it's hoped for, then I think we need to ask what would a politics of truth-telling that took these kinds of complexities seriously start to look like? Thank you. Thank you.